This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 472. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Okay, Psalms, Book of Psalms. Psalm 35. This is a Psalm of David. And this is prayer against both open and concealed enemies, followed by promises of praise. Seller's comment on this is that David was a monarch, which means that he ruled alone. And all the time that he ruled, there were those who were trying to overthrow him and, to fall, and who falsely accused him. And these made his reign much more difficult. Those who were trying to harm him were really touching God's anointed. And there was great sin in doing this. So that's what Sellers comment on this psalm. However, both Bullinger and Rotherham, in their interpretation of this psalm, refer this to David's early career against Saul, when Saul was against David and his men. So whether we view this after David takes the throne, and many are against David, or whether we view this early in his career, against Saul, and his men are against David. David is facing enemies, and he's seeking the Lord as he's facing the enemies. So again, this is of David. Israel's great shepherd king is speaking. Verse 1, Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Fight against them that fight against me. So David calls on the Lord again in another time of trouble, this time when men are striving with him. So he calls upon the Lord to plead his cause, to contend in his behalf with those who are contending with David. And he calls upon the Lord to fight against those who are fighting against David. So we have contend with those who contend with me, fight with those who fight with me. And that would be very nice if, if they had translated plead and strive the same way in the first line as they did fight and fight in the second line. But that's the idea. Now this was an appropriate prayer for David, God's anointed, fighting for Israel, God's people, to make. And we can well, he could well pray for God to fight on his side. However, today we live in a time when God does not have a chosen special people that he is especially favoring. He said we live in a time when, as Ephesians 3, 6 says, that the Gentiles, and that really should be translated the nations, that the nations should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Hopefully you realize that those three words, heirs, body, and partakers, all have the same prefix, soon, which means equal or joint. And the nations today are joint and equal. And so we can't expect God to fight on the side of one nation against another nation. At the same time, I don't think this means that we should not stop looking to him in times of war or in times of trouble. I think we should definitely look to him in those times. And when the time comes, we do have to fight, whether it's literally or whether it's in court or whether it's in words, 
whatever the case might be, we should look to him and we should seek to always fight on the side of right and justice. Now Bollinger points out the many verbs here. Plead, fight, take hold, stand up, draw out, stop the way, say. And he says that this is the figure of speak, speech exergasia, or working out. Suggesting that the Lord work out his pleading his cause by doing all these things. Verse 2, take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for mine help. So he calls upon Jehovah to take hold of shield and buckler. Now, of course, Jehovah doesn't really need shield and buckler. He doesn't really need armor and protection. But this is a poem, and he is poetically picturing God preparing to fight on his side. And he pictures that by God taking up his shield and buckler and preparing for battle. He says, stand up for my help. Stand up means arise or go into action for my help. Verse 3, draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. So he calls upon God to draw out the spear. And again, does the Lord really need a spear? But again, he's picturing God preparing to go to battle for him. He says, stop the way. That means barricade, more or less. Barricade the way against them that persecute me. And that would be, pursue would be a better translation. Stop the way against those who pursue me. So David was being chased. We can think again of the time of Saul when Saul and his men were chasing David, trying to capture him and his men, of course, to put David to death. So he calls on God to barricade the way against those who were pursuing him. So he's calling on God to go into action, do the things David did, did not want to do on his own behalf. David, remember, did not want to fight Saul, his lord, his king, the king of his nation. He hadn't wanted to harm him. Saul always suspected David of wanting to assassinate him and take the throne. David never wanted that. The Lord was going to exalt David to the throne. David was more than willing to wait for his time. And if Saul had allowed it, it would have happened quite naturally. Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Jonathan was a very godly man as he realized the Lord had chosen David and not himself as the next king. And David was even his brother-in-law. Jonathan would have been more than willing to step aside and let his brother-in-law take the throne. So if Saul had just been willing to submit, it could have happened quite easily. And yet Saul was not willing to submit. Saul moved against David. David did not want to take arms against Saul. But he wanted the Lord to contend on his behalf. So he says, Barricade the way against those who pursue me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. And of course, David doesn't just want the Lord to say the words but to actually be what these words describe, his salvation. And he wants the Lord to speak to his soul. Soul, of course, here is nephesh, for me, myself. Say to me, say to my person, my very being, I am your salvation. Verse 4, let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. 
Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt. So those who sought his soul. Now in Hebrew there is nephesh, word for soul. And those, they were seeking his soul, what were they seeking to do? Were they seeking to get a hold of the immortal part of him that was separable from his body? No. They were seeking to kill David and therefore destroy his soul. Souls can be killed and, and can die. And only the Lord can raise those souls back to life. So these sought this exact outcome for David. They wanted him to die. That's how they were seeking his soul. And he calls upon God to let them be confounded and put to shame. And that was because of their unrighteous cause. David was not vengeful against those who were after him. But he wants them to be put to shame. He wants them to be stopped because of what they were doing. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that plot my hurt. And notice here we have, as we have often in the Psalms, a prophetic, a poetic repetition. As is common in Hebrew poetry, where something is put one way and then another to make it clear what it means. So seeking his soul and devising his hurt were the same things here. Now hurt there is the Hebrew ra'ah. Their translators usually make evil. That means calamity. So they were devising David's calamity. They were devising his, again, his death. Verse 5, let them be as chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. So these are pursuing David, but now he calls upon the Lord to make them like chaff in the face of the wind. Before there is panim, Hebrew panim, in the face of the wind. And of course, the, the force of the wind blowing against you is represented here poetically as its face. Talk about facing, we will talk about facing into the wind. I think there you're usually referring to your own face. But of course, the wind has a face too. And when you face into the wind, the wind is facing you as well. So they are, they are being carried along as chaff in the face of the wind. Wind here is the Hebrew ruach, that can be translated either spirit or wind. And it can certainly mean the wind, as it does here. So David is picturing the tables being turned. And now his enemies are the ones being pursued, and he pictures them as blowing along like chaff before the wind. Then he says, let the angel of the Lord chase them. Now, as he pointed out in Psalm 37, the angel of the Lord only appears in these two psalms, in the psalms. And I believe that the angel of the Lord is not one of that race of heavenly beings that we see in the Bible, but it is the messenger of Jehovah himself, Jesus Christ. So here he speaks of the messenger of the Lord chasing these ones who are chasing David. And Bollinger points out that in Psalm 34, we had the angel of the Lord mentioned. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps or encircles those who fear him. So there the angel of the Lord was acting in mercy. And that is to those who fear him. But here the angel of the Lord is acting in punishment against those who were seeking the life of David, the Lord's anointed. Verse 6. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord persecute them. So he, he pictures them fleeing, and fleeing through a dark and slippery way. And you know, if you try to run in a dark and slippery place, what's going to happen? You're going to be falling and stumbling and hurting yourself and who knows what. 
So he says, let their way as they flee be dark and slippery. And let the angel of the Lord, but again, it shouldn't be persecuted, it should be pursue. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them. So this verse repeats what is said in verse 5. Again, Hebrew poetry where ideas are repeated and stated two different ways back to back. So the angel of the Lord is chasing them and pursuing them. Verse 7, For without cause they have hid from me their net in a pit, which without cause they have digged from my soul. So he says, Without cause they have hid from me their net in a pit, or covered a pit over with a net. We think of this as the pit traps, where you disguise a pit, putting leaves and grass over it, and then something stumbles into it and is caught in the pit. So David describes them seeking a trap for him. Now, I don't think it was literally a net and a pit, but it was a trap. But they are doing this, he says, without cause. And notice this fits very well with Saul and his men, who sought David without a cause. Now, as God's choice as king, David constantly had those who hated him with no reason. First, we see his brothers, if not hating, then at least resenting him. Of course, back then, importance was supposed to go with birth order. Here, David was the eighth and youngest. So he was supposed to be the least important in the family, and yet he's chosen over all his brothers. So they at least resented him. Then Saul and his men hated David without reason. And then I believe there were others who hated his righteous reign in his kingdom probably because he was righteous rather than for any good reason. So he says, they've laid this net for me without a cause. Now Jonathan used this very same Hebrew word when he spoke to Saul, his father, and pleaded for David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 5. When he was dissuading Saul from seeking David's life, he said, for he, that is David, put his life in his hand, his soul in his hand, and slew the Philistine. And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it, and didst rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood, to, save David, to slay David without a cause? So Jonathan, Saul's son, very well realized that there was no cause for Saul to be against David, and yet he was against him anyway. So David uses the same word here, without cause they fit for me their net in a pit which without cause, same word again, they have digged for my soul. So they set up a trap for his soul, again, without any cause, without any reason. Soul here is nephesh, again, and notice again that soul can be trapped, a soul can be taken away, a soul can be lost. Souls are subject to death. There's no such thing as an immortal soul in Scripture. Verse 8, Let destruction come upon him at unawares. And let the net that he hath hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. So he calls upon the Lord to let destruction come upon him, but unawares. And the word destruction there means desolation or devastation or ruin. The Hebrew is show. And it's not related to abad, the usual word we think of for destruction. It means desolation, devastation, or ruin. And it's the same word in the last line of this same verse. But notice he says, Let destruction come upon him at unawares. And notice the singular him here. 
Throughout, he's been speaking of their and they. Multiple people, them who strive with me, them that fight with me. But here it seems that David's mind focuses on, with indignation, upon the particular enmity of one individual. And so as David speaks of this individual, he prays that ruin might come upon this one, as unexpectedly as his betrayal and seeking the life of David has fallen upon him. Now it seems unlikely to me that David is thinking of Saul. David never seemed to wish Saul's destruction, and he mourned at Saul's destruction. He, as any good Israelite would, loved his king. And he loved him also as the Lord's anointed. But as he thinks of this particular man who has sought his destruction, and causeless has set a trap for him, he indignantly calls upon the Lord to let, des let desolation come upon him at unawares, and let his net that he hath hid catch himself. And this is what we would call poetic justice. That his own trap would actually trap himself. And this, we realize, happens. It happened to Ahithophel, for example, as he opposed David and sided with Absalom in the re revolt. But the trap he set caught himself. Same thing with Absalom. Now, this is not an appropriate prayer for today because God does not actively destroy the wicked today. Sometimes the wicked perhaps destroy themselves. We can't pray that the Lord bring poetic justice upon man. When the Lord acts in justice, it often is poetic. It often is very fitting. He calls upon the Lord to let his net that he has hid catch himself, and into that very destruction, into that very desolation or ruin, let him fall. The very ruin he planned for David. Verse 9, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. So David speaks of my soul, again, nephesh. And this time his soul refers to his emotions. The soul is often connected with the emotions and the desires. And so he says, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. His emotions will be uplifted in the Lord and shall rejoice in his salvation. So again, David anticipates the deliverance and the poetic justice he hopes for. And this psalm more or less has three stanzas where David starts out praying to the Lord about the wicked, remembering the wickedness that they have done, and then anticipating the Lord's deliverance. And we have the first stanzas in verses 1 through 10, second verses 11 through 18, third in verses 19 through 28. So his soul will be joyful in the Lord and shall rejoice in his salvation. This is what he called for earlier. For the Lord to save him. Now he anticipates the Lord doing it. Verse 10. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee, which deliverest the poor from him that is too strong for him? Yea, the poor and the needy from him that spoileth him. So he says, All my bones shall say. Now, what in the world does that mean? Bones speaking. Well, the bones can be put for the substance. All my body says. And the body, I think, here is put from all my being, my whole being, says. Now, if we would go back to Genesis chapter 2, we'd see Adam use a similar finger, figure. When he saw the woman, when he saw Isha for the first time, 
And he said in Genesis 2.23, This Isha is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or Isha, because she was taken out of man, or Ish. And she was not named Eve, or life spring, until after the fall. Originally her name was Isha, woman. And she was, in that respect, the only true woman, because she was the only one who was taken out of a man, rather than everybody else who has, of course, been born out of a woman. But he says of her, she is bone of my bones. That means she is of the same substance as I am. And we see the same things thing in a figurative sense in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5 and verse 30, where it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And what that means is that we are of the same substance that he is. That is, Adam looked at Isha and says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we, as we become partakers of Christ's substance, we become bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. So we become, in, in substance, in essence, what he is as we partake of his body. So bones can be the symbol for the body, for the substance, for the being, what we are. So his whole being, what David is, says this. says, Lord, who is like unto thee? And we would echo that with David. Who is like Jehovah? Who is like Yahweh? No one. Certainly no one is like Jehovah. Jehovah, who del which delivereth the poor from him that is too strong for him. Now the poor is the humble or the afflicted, not necessarily the impoverished. And that was David, although he probably was impoverished too, but he was afflicted. He was mistreated. He was humiliated by Saul, made to be in exile. When he didn't deserve it. So he delivered the afflicted one from him that was too strong for him. Yea, the poor and the needy from him that spoileth him. And again, that was Saul speaking, seeking to destroy and to spoil David. So the Lord delivers helpless from those who are too strong for him. Bullinger here has an interesting note where he lists things that are too strong for the righteous. He says the law is too strong for us, according to the book of Galatians. He says sin is too strong for us. We can't overcome it on our own. The world is too strong for us. Can't overcome the world. Ourselves are too strong for us. And finally, death is too strong for us. All these things are too strong for us to overcome on our own. We need God's help to overcome all these things. And he gives us proof for that. The law is too strong in Galatians 3, 10, and 13. Sin is too strong in Romans 5, 21. The world is too strong in John 16, 33. Self is too strong in Romans 7, 24. And death is too strong in 2 Timothy 1.10. And yet the Lord delivers us from all of them. Verse 11. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. So here we start into the second stanza of this psalm. And he speaks of false witnesses who rise up against him. So... In the first stanza, we had those who, who strove with him. 
Here we have who argued with him and fought against him. Here we have those who bear false or unjust testimony against him. So he says they rose up. In other words, they went into action against David. And this happened at the time of Saul. Many were eager, it seems, to gain favor in the eyes of Saul. And when they realized that Saul's temperament was against David, his paranoid fear, they knew they could gain favor with Saul by feeding that, by making false accusations against David. Verse 12, They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. These people rewarded David calamity for good. And notice that this is not that they rewarded him wickedness for righteousness, but they rewarded him destructive deeds for good deeds. And again, going back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was actually knowing or experiencing good events and calamitous events in your life. All of us, we realize, experience both good and beneficial things happening to us and calamitous and bad things happening to us. And yet God created us to not know calamity, to always know good, not to die, not to experience calamity. He protected us, put us in a perfect environment. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the knowledge of good events and calamity, not the knowledge of righteousness and sin. And we can know, and righteousness and sin could be have been known without eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam could have recognized the difference between sin and righteousness, even without eating that fruit. So it was not about knowing righteousness and wickedness, it was about knowing calamity and good. So David had done good to these people, and yet they rewarded him calamity for it. He said, to the spoiling of my soul. And spoiling there is actually the word for bereaving. It's used elsewhere when a mother loses her children. So David's soul, his nephesh, his emotions, were bereaved as a woman who has lost her children. So this was a great sorrow to David that they had done this, rewarded him the calamity for good. Verse 13, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. So as for David... When they were sick, he says his clothing was sackcloth. So David's heart, it seems, in the second stanza of the psalm, moves from righteous indignation against those who opposed him, as we saw in the first stanza, to instead sorrowful remembrance at past friendship with some who now aligned themselves against him. So David's open and tender heart doubtless made friends easily. And as a powerful army commander among Saul's forces, he would have had many whom he considered as his good friends. Now some of these were still with Saul and had aligned themselves against him, as Saul was against him, and had even turned to falsely accusing David before Saul to gain his favor. So he remembers his past friendship with him with sorrow. Now Rotherham suggests that the word sick here means wounded, we certainly would fit with David, and as an army commander. He would care for the life of his men. So he says, As for me, when they were wounded, my clothing was sackcloth. Sackcloth, of course, we realize, is a great sign of mourning. 
So David recalls that he had been greatly upset when these who were now against him had been wounded. He says, I humbled my soul with fasting. Soul again here at Nephesh means himself, his whole person. Now, as far as fasting, Bollinger suggests in the fast, referring to the Day of Atonement. That occurred once a year, and it was celebrated by fasting and afflicting your soul. So his mind returned again and again, apparently, to the this sick one, or these sick ones, these wounded ones, during his day of seeking God. And he was very troubled about them. He says, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. Now this is a difficult word. What does he mean, my prayer returned into my own bosom? Well, it's hard to tell, but it seems perhaps to mean that his prayer that Yahweh would do these men good returned to his own heart, and he sought their good as well. He says, I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. And behaved himself literally means he paced back and forth. He's greatly agitated, he's pacing, he's upset. As though he were my friend or brother. And again, we have the singular here showing again that David has one particular person in mind. Now clearly then, this is not his son Absalom, for he was related to Absalom, he was his son. He doesn't speak of sons here, but as friends or brothers, again pointing to this being earlier in his career. Could refer to Ahithophel if he took this psalm as being that late in his life. But I think it's earlier. And David is thinking of friends he had in Saul's court, perhaps one particular one. He had been very upset when he was wounded, and yet he had turned on David now. He says, I bow down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. And shows the depth of David's care for this one who was not even related to him. He had been so downcast that his hurt. But in verse 15, But in mine adversity they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and cease not. So when David was in adversity, which means halting or falling, when he, was, when he stumbled, they rejoiced. And this shows their extreme ingratitude for David's own care and concern for them. They rejoice at David's time of trouble. He says, Yea, the abjects gather themselves together against me, and they knew it not. Now what's an abject? Well, this word appears only once in the Hebrew. It means the rabble. And we see this, for example, when David was hiding out in Judah, the rabble would gather to Saul and betray David's location to him while he was on the run. And the rabble sought favor with Saul by doing this. Later on, the rabble of Israel, just the rabble, joined in with Absalom's rebellion. And in the same way, in the future, the rabble gathered with religious leaders against the Lord Jesus at his trial. And the rabble were all too willing to smite him in the face and mock him, make fun of him, as they saw their leaders turn against him. And in the future, the rabble of the rebels against the kingdom will gather themselves together against David until they eject him from his throne. He says, The rabble gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and cease not. So they cried against him, tore into him, and didn't cease. Verse 16, with hypocritical mockers in feasts, they gnashed upon me with their teeth. 
Now, what's a hypocritical mocker in feasts? Well, that word feast there seems to be the word for cakes, not the usual word for Hebrew festivals. So they mock for cake. Kind of strange. Bollinger suggests hypocrites at feasts mocking at the feast. So he suggests this means hypocrites who, while they attend feasts and appear to celebrate, really mock and make fun of the feasts. Rotherham translates this, profane praetors of perversion. Well, it was most wrong to mock at the Lord's feast, particularly while you were supposedly celebrating them. Then they gnashed upon me with their teeth. Well, if we think of them complaining, comparing these to those who are eating cake, of course you'd gnash up the cake with your teeth. So they are gnashing upon him. Or they could be like those who kept the feasts outwardly but despised them in their hearts. So these people honored David outwardly but hated him inwardly. Verse 17, Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. So he calls upon the Lord. In your versions, you probably have a capital L, small o-r-d, which refers to Adonai, but this actually originally was Jehovah. This was one of those emendations of the Sophrim when they changed it from Jehovah to Adonai. And they must have felt that Jehovah looking on was just made him sound too much like a human and wasn't respectful enough. Well, it's a good thing these high and mighty Jewish scholars honored God more than the righteous King David did. And, of course, I'm saying that sarcastically. These were certainly arrogant men indeed. But he says, Jehovah, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions. And we would wonder in this dispensation of grace the same thing. This has gone on for so long. How long is the Lord going to look on and not change things on this earth, not rescue the souls of his people, and not bring his kingdom? So he says, rescue my soul, Nephesh, again here, David himself, from their destructions. Again, devastations, desolations, or ruins, as earlier in the psalm. And of course, these ruins, desolations, would be those they had planned for him. Then he says, my darling from the lions. Darling there is my only one. Referring back to a soul. My only soul. Of course, each of us only has one soul. Rescue my only one from the lions or young lions, again referring to Saul's soldiers, his men who were against David. Verse 18, I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among much people. As he had ended the first stanza, anticipating the Lord's deliverance, he ends the second stanza the same way, anticipating the Lord's deliverance. And once the Lord delivers him, then he says he will thank him in the great kahal and praise him among much people. So David will not keep quiet when the Lord delivers him, nor should we. David speaks of giving the Lord, Jehovah, thanks in the great congregation. The congregation there is the Hebrew word kahal. And we often spell that Q-A-H-A-L. Of course, a Q without a U after it, you just pronounce it like a K. You say, well, why don't we make it a K then? Well, it kind of helps because there are two Hebrew words that could be made a K. So in order to distinguish them, we make one a Q without a U after it and one a K. That way we can tell the difference between the two letters. 
But whether we spell it with our Q or a K, the word is kahal. And we realize from Psalm 22, 22, quoted in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, I believe, that kahal is the same as ecclesia in the New Testament. And it means an out-position company, often of representative leaders. I will give thee thanks in the great kahal. Now, of course, God's kahal was Israel's kahal in the past. Israel had a kahal. It had a group of the leaders, the representatives of the people. And David, of course, was the convener of those representatives, the koholeth. And well, he's never called that. His son Solomon is called the koholeth, and that's actually the book of koholeth. And we get our name from Greek, Ecclesiastes, related to Ecclesia, instead of koholeth, related to kahal, but it's the same thing. But David was really the convener of the great kahal, and he would as their leader, exhort them. And here he says, give thanks before them. Now the call, the great call of Israel is also mentioned later, chronologically, not canonically, canonically later, in Ezra chapter 10, and in verse 1, where it says, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great kahal of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. So this was a great kahal, and every member of the kahal was a Israelite, a member of Israel. Yet I think when we when we speak of the great kahal, not just a great kahal, but the great kahal, it's not speaking of Israel's kahal, either at the time of David or at the time of Ezra, but it really speaks of the kahal of Jesus Christ. When he says in the book of Matthew, upon this rock I will build my kahal, is what he would have said in Hebrew. Of course, we have the New Testament in Greek, so it says ecclesia. But Jesus Christ has a kahal, and he builds it of himself, of his own glorious characteristics. And the call of Jesus Christ will appear in glory in the kingdom of God. And Israel will once again have a great kahal at the start of the kingdom of God. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 8. Jeremiah 31 verse 8 we read, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth and with them the blind and the lame. One woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together. A great kahal shall return thither. So a great kahal, a great opposition company of Israelites, will return to Israel at the start of the kingdom of God. And guess what? David will be among them. David will be in that great kahal of the kingdom of God. And he will praise Jehovah in that kingdom of God. We already saw that in Psalm 22 and verse 25. Of course, speaking prophetically, especially of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But also I think this will be true of David. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-five: My praise shall be of thee in the great kahal. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. So he says he will praise God in the great kahal. And here he says he will thank God in the great kahal in Psalm thirty-five, eighteen. In Psalm 40 and verse 9, he says, I have preached righteousness in the great kahal. 
Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. So David will proclaim righteousness in the great kahal of the kingdom of God. And then Psalm 40 and verse 10, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great kahal. So David will speak of Jehovah's grace and of Jehovah's truth there in front of the great kahal. Now we too, according to the book of Ephesians, are predestined for sonship place. So we too will be part of the great kahal of God, of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God. Of course, not as part of Israel, but as part of God's kahal among the other nations. So when we speak of the great kahal, we should think of the kahal of the kingdom of God. I will give you thanks in the great kahal. I will praise thee among much people. So David will not keep it quiet when the Lord delivers him. He will praise the Lord in front of many people. And we should not keep it quiet when the Lord delivers us either. As the Lord saved us from sin and death, well, we shouldn't keep it quiet. We should praise him for it among much people. So three times in this psalm, and I think those are the three stanzas, David thinks of his enemies. And every time yet, every time he ends up returning to his confidence in the Lord and in his deliverance. And that's what he's doing in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he returns to his enemies once again to start the third stanza. Verse 19. Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me. Neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. So he returns again to consideration of his enemies. And he prays to God, Let not them that are my enemies wrongfully rejoice over me. So again, these were wrongfully his enemies. David had done nothing to them. He'd done nothing to harm them, nothing against them. As he'd said in the previous stanza, he actually had benefited them. He says, Don't let them rejoice over me. Don't let them be excited because they've defeated me. Neither let them that wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. So the wink with the eye, the idea there is satisfaction. Neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. And that without a cause there is quoted in John chapter 15 and verse 25. John 15, verse 25. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Now it says written in their law, but understand the law was what started the Old Testament. So the Jews would often speak of the Old Testament as the law. Now we know that the quote-unquote Old Testament, or really the Old Covenant, starts out and indeed in the Torah, the beginning of the Old Testament, and so we call it the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, when really that covenant takes place in Exodus, but we call the whole thing the Old Covenant. And so it's very similar. They called the whole thing the law. So it's written, they hated me without a cause. Now in Greek there, without a cause is the Greek word Dorian, D-O-R-E-A-N. 
And so just like they hated David without a cause, it's quoted of Jesus Christ, that they hated Jesus Christ without a cause. Now that word Dorian only appears twice in the New Testament, and the other time is Romans 3.24, where it says, being justified, he speaks of all of sin and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word freely there is the Greek word Dorian, being justified without a cause by his grace. So that is the truth that the Lord is hated without a cause by his enemies, but we are saved, we are justified without a cause by God's grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So that is without a cause. But here in the Old Testament, it's let not that, neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. Verse 20, For they speak not peace, but they devise deceitful matters against them that are quiet in the land. So they don't speak peace, which means a true union. So they are not, with their words, and of course their actions, trying to unify people. Instead, they're trying to tear apart. And those who falsely accuse David in order to win favor with Saul aided in tearing these two former friends apart. They saw that Saul was against David, and they wanted to get in good with Saul, so they spoke against David. But that was not peace, that was division. But they devised deceitful matters. And matters, there's actually words or speeches. They devised deceitful speeches. So they're going to go before Saul and try to win favor with him, so they come up with this deceitful speech, Giving against David. So deceitful speeches against them that are quiet in the land. And David formerly had been one of these. David was quiet. He wasn't causing trouble. He was not a troublemaker or a rebel. But these devised slanderous speeches against him. Those who are quiet in the land. That's the Hebrew Eretz again. Translated land or earth. Here it's properly translated land. Verse 21. Yea, they opened their mouth wide against me. And said, aha, aha, our eye hath seen it. So they opened their mouth wide against me. What exactly does that mean, opening their mouth wide? Well, the idea here is in contempt. I don't know, that's not quite how we show contempt, but apparently that was how they showed contempt, is by opening wide their mouth. So they opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha. In Hebrew, that's, and both are kind of trying to make it sound like laughter, right? Aha, you know, when you laugh, it's kind of, ha, 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 it's kind of like that. And they like that, kind of sounds like laughter too. So they said, our eye has seen it. So they believe that their schemes against David have succeeded. And they take great satisfaction in this fact. However, I think they were counting their chickens before they hatched, because the last word had not been spoken on this. Notice, too, that again this reflects forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of those who mocked him on the cross. They also said, yeah, yeah. Our plan has come to fruition. We're putting to death this one that we hated so much. We're so jealous against him. He performed these miracles. God favored him instead of us. 
and so he put him to death. Well, they too mocked him and thought their eyes had seen their victory. As they found out later, they too had counted on victory too soon. Verse 22, This thou hast seen, O Lord, keep not silence. O Lord, be not far from me. So they were saying, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. But David says, You have seen it. Yahweh too has seen what these wicked men see. And so he says, Keep not silence. Now if we'd sum up these three stanzas, David is angry against the wicked in the first stanza, verses 1 through 10. He is sorrowful because of the betrayal of former friends in verses 11 through 18. And in this third stanza, verses 19 through 28, he turns to acknowledging his need in the light of these wicked and, and praying for help in trouble. So he acknowledges his need here. Keep not silence. O Lord, be not far from me. Now notice that Lord there is spelled in our King James Version, capital L, small O-R-D, which should tell us that it is the word Adonai in Hebrew. However, this is another case when the Sopharim, the self-proclaimed wise ones, who took it upon themselves to edit the scriptures, they changed it here. And I don't know, they seem to often think that David didn't respect the Lord enough, and they were so much more respectful to him than David was, apparently, these arrogant men. So they thought talking about Yahweh being near to you was maybe not respectful enough, so they changed it from Yahweh to Adonai. But he originally read, Oh, Yahweh be not far from me, not Adonai, until the Sophrim changed it. Then verse 23, Stir up thyself and awake to my judgment, even unto my cause, my God and my Lord. So he says, stir up yourself, awake. And we too desire this, that God will go into action and bring in his kingdom. That he will awake to judgment. Now David wants God to go into action for his judgment. And that should certainly show that the word judgment does not mean punishment. As many people rather foolishly think it means today. No, judging David, he doesn't say, awake and punish me, Lord. Now, judging David will result in him vindicating David against the slander of these foes and against their murderous intentions. So judgment is setting things right. Of course, for the wicked, that means punishment. For the righteous, it means vindication. And so he's not asking God to punish him. He's asking God to vindicate him. So he says, Awake to my judgment, even down to my cause, my God and my Lord. And that is my God and my Master, because here it is legitimately Adonai. It is not Jehovah in verse 23. Verse 22, it was Adonai in Hebrew, but it should have been Jehovah. Here it is legitimately Adonai. So he says, My God and my Adonai, my Master. Verse 24, Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to thy righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. So again, he says, Judge me, Jehovah my Elohim, my God. And again, this would result in David's vindication as regards this matter. And these were probably, like I have said, the wrongful accusations of Saul and his men. 
Now, at the same time, we realize that David was still a sinner. But, of course, his sin was forgiven. The Lord took away his sin, as he told him, after his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. And, of course, the reason he could do that is the Lord himself paid the penalty for his sin on the cross. But, as we see this psalm relating forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, and David's experience echoing his, he truly had never done anything wrong, and God's judgment would indeed judge him to be righteous. So he says again, let them not rejoice over me. Don't let them be excited because their wicked schemes have succeeded against me. Verse 25, let them not stay in their hearts. Ah, so would we have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. So let them not say in their hearts. And once again we see here that our, our English figure of speech, the heart, is the seat of the emotions. But in the Jewish figure of speech, in Hebrew, the heart, the Hebrew leb, is not the seat of the emotions, it's the inner being. So they would say this in their inner thoughts, not in their inner emotions. So inside of them they would say, ah, and again that is hyach in Hebrew. Hyach, so would we have it. And we there is literally our souls. Let them not say in their hearts, Yah, so would our souls have it. So David doesn't want them to see their desires fulfilled. His soul is what the Hebrews would use for the seat of their emotions. So they would say, so would our desires have it. So they were anticipating having their desire in verse 21, and David says, don't let them see that. Let them not say, we have swallowed them him up. And their true desire was David's death. They wanted him to die. They didn't just want him to be an outcast. They wanted him to die. And of course, that was also the desire of the wicked religious leaders for the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted him to die. They wanted to swallow him up. Of course, they too were disappointed. Though not because he did not die, but because after he died, he rose. Verse 26, Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. So let them be ashamed and brought to confusion, or let them be disappointed and ashamed. He says that rejoice at my hurt. And remember that to go contrary to David was to go contrary to the Lord's anointed. Because the Lord had chosen David to be the next king. And to go contrary to the Lord's anointed was to go contrary to God. So these people did indeed deserve to be disappointed and ashamed for rejoicing at David's harm. That rejoice at mine hurt. Hurt there is the Hebrew ra'ah, which is often translated evil. But of course, even the King James translators had to recognize that rejoice at my evil would not be appropriate here. Because so often in English, we use the word evil to mean wickedness. David isn't talking about rejoicing at his wickedness, so he's talking about rejoicing at his calamity. Which is why they translated it hurt instead of their usual evil. Then he says, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. Well, there we have the Hebrew poetry, where we have instead of repetition of sounds like in English poetry, 
we have the repetition of ideas. And really, that second line repeats the thought of the first line of verse 26. Verse 27, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. So he says, let them shout for joy, on the other hand, instead of being disappointed and ashamed. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause, or have pleasure in my righteous cause is what it means. Just like later in the verse it says that Jehovah has pleasure in the prosperity of a servant. It's really the same thing. Those who have pleasure in David's righteous cause. So David does not want those who have pleasure in his righteous cause to suffer for siding with him. He wants to see them rewarded for doing it. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified. And of course, that is in contrast with those in the previous verse who magnified themselves against David. So he wants shame and confusion on those who magnified himself, themselves against David, but he wants shouts of joy and gladness for those who say, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Prosperity there is shalom. We recognize that from the Hebrew greeting shalom. Basically means overall good, particularly as it is connected with God. Now a servant there in the prosperity of his servant, that's the Hebrew word ebed, which is the word for slave. And it seems that David, like Paul in the New Testament, David in the Old Testament considers himself the Lord's slave. And of course the position of a slave is not a high position, but not having slaves, we don't realize in our society that the glory of a slave is a great master. If you're going to be a slave, you don't want to be a slave of some mean, little, tiny, insignificant master. You're supposed to be being the slave of some great and powerful master. And so to be a slave of the Lord is to be a slave of the highest one of all. So David, just like Paul after him, calls himself the Lord's slave. Verse 28, And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. So as in all three stanzas, David here ends this third stanza by speaking confidently of what he will do when his certain deliverance is effected. He says, His tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. That's what he's going to do when he is finally delivered as he has prayed for the Lord to deliver him. Then the psalm closes with the words to the chief musician. And so this psalm was therefore taken to be used for public worship and praise, in what we might say was the liturgy of the temple, or the public worship and the public praise of the people of the Lord. And perhaps David himself put this psalm forward, once his own difficulty was passed and the Lord had indeed delivered him, he promoted this psalm to be used in the prayer, the public worship, and the praise of the people. So that is this great psalm, 35, the prayer for deliverance. But we're out of time for today, and we'll have to take up from there 
in our next study.